This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Cannon is becoming such a much more nicer person. More willing, you know, to show her emotions. and I might have that backwards, but... But it's not just couples. There are some who have such a uh, closeness to others around them that they, they, they have this almost involuntary need to join them in their suffering. You have sympathetic criers, people who cry when someone else cries. You have sympathetic pukers. <laughs> like if I were to see you eating something like pumpkin spice Cheerios, I would throw up in my mouth a little bit because I just so related to the discomfort you must be experiencing. (laughs) But joking aside, in a way, God is calling us to relate with someone very closely this morning, kind of like that, and it might surprise you who it is. Our passage actually begins in chapter 8, verse 18, but we need to start at the end to understand it. So look at Jeremiah chapter 9. In verse 23, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the conclusion of the passage that we're going to look at this morning is that God wants us to know Him. To know who He is and how He feels. You might even say to sympathize with Him, but not because He's lonely or or needs to be consoled, not, not like that, but because He wants his people to know him so well that they begin to become more like him, like like couples do. So what does that look like in Jeremiah chapter 8 and 9? How do we know if we know God like he wants us to? That's the question I want to answer this morning. What does it look like to know the Lord the way he's talking about at the end of Jeremiah chapter 9? Well, before we answer that question, I want you to remember that last week, God detailed the terrible depths of Judah's sin. He began by explaining how, like so many religions today, that that Judah had turned their religion into useless ceremony and just dead ritual. And then he went on to, to show how their sin had infiltrated to the deepest parts of the home. And they were actually worshiping pagan god, gods with the family around the dinner table. And then finally last week, if you'll remember, he, he showed us the depths of Judah's sin when he explained how they were offering their own children as burnt sacrifices. It was a very, very dark description of how far Judah had fallen. Now, you might be thinking, that's great, Grandpa. What does that have to do with knowing God? Well, what do you think would be God's response to the sickening depravity of those people? How would you respond 
if someone you knew was acting like that? Let's go back to the beginning of our passage and see. Let's, let's see how God reacted because that's going to tell us what it looks like to know him. Look at chapter 8, beginning in verse 18, where the first thing Jeremiah says is knowing God looks like lamenting the incurable wound of sin. That knowing God looks like lamenting the incurable wound of sin. Beginning in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 18. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I may, might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them, for they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow, falsehood and truth, not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression, and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Now, I said before that passage that knowing the Lord is lamenting the incurable wound of sin. And the reason I use that phrase is obviously because in verse 21, chapter 8, chapter 8 21, God refers to, to Judah's wound. But this isn't some random reference. This isn't the first time Jeremiah has used this term. In fact, throughout the book of Jeremiah, the idea of a wound or being wounded and, and incurable is mentioned 28 times. An incurable wound that they have. So what was that wound? Well, chapter 9, verses 3 through 6, just told us that the wound that Judah could not cure on their own was their sin. Their sin was, was incurable, which is why God says in chapter 8, verse 22, that not even the, the world-renowned doctors of the time or the, the, the healing salves that came from Gilead could do a thing to touch this wound. But our question is, how does God feel about Judah's incurable wound? What is his reaction to it? Well, look again back at chapter 8, verse 18. He says, My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. And then in verse 21, he says, For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. And if you look at chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I may weep day and night. And verse 2, 
Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. The imagery here is profound, and we, we have to let it affect us to really think about what is being described here. God doesn't have a stomach or nerves or a heart or, or anything like that. So he's describing his terms or his grief in terms that we can understand. It's that feeling when your grief is so heavy that you feel sick to your stomach. It's that grief that might sneak up on you in the middle of the day when you remember something terrible that's recently happened and that knot leaps back into your throat and your mouth goes dry and your heart hurts. That's how God says He's feeling. The Creator of heaven and earth is saying that that His heartache is so severe that He wishes He had a cabin in the woods that nobody else knew about so that He could go away from them and not see them again. But He's God. He can't not see His people. So instead He wishes that, that, that like the headwaters of a river, his eyes had a never-ending flow of tears so that he could weep as much as he wants to. How about you? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever wished you had more tears because you're not done crying, but you're, you've exhausted the saline that your tear ducts have to offer? Let me ask that question a different way. Have you ever felt that severity of sorrow, that depth of despair, that that height of heartache about sin? That gut-wrenching grief about your sin? Because knowing God looks like joining Him in lamenting the incurable wound that sin has had, has made on our world. Ask yourself, like Bob was explaining this morning, when you come across those folks who are living on the the bottom of the barrel of society, as it were, those who are looking to hurt people, like Jeremiah said. Those, are looking, those who are looking to defraud and defame people. What's in your heart? Because heaven forbid what creeps up into our heart is superiority, animosity, or judgment. I don't know about you, but one thing that God has put into my heart recently when I see those people and those feelings creep up into me of, of superiority or, or animosity. God has, has put His voice into my head and it said, Thank God God didn't treat you that way. If you wonder what this might look like, there was one who showed us. There, there is one who knew God like this one who knows God better than anyone else. Several hundred years after Jeremiah, Matthew tells us about Jesus at a time when he was in the temple talking about the same thing, talking about the people's sin, rebuking them for their sin. But 
after Jesus pointed out the sins of these religious leaders. I want you to see what Matthew says in verse 37 of Matthew chapter 23. After he had rebuked these leaders for abusing and neglecting the people, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, yet you were not willing. That was Jesus' response to the people who wanted to kill him, to the self-righteous, indignant men who wanted to kill him. He laments that, they, that he would have gathered them under his wings, but they refused. If, if we would know our God, then we would also weep over the incurable wound that, that, of sin that is in this world. But let's keep going. Because you might be think, thinking, and it is true, yeah, yeah, God is lamenting, but the Bible says that God doesn't just weep over sin. It's, the Bible's very clear that there is judgment for sin as well, and that's true. But look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 7, where we see that knowing God also means lamenting the, the devastating judgment that comes for sin. Lamenting the devastating judgment of sin, chapter 9, verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of the cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own heart and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them from among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Now, I don't know about you, but when it came to disciplining my children, I tended to be more in the camp that said, this is going to hurt you more than it hurts me. But this is not our God. You see, our God has been so mislabeled as a God who enjoys judging people that this simply isn't the truth. First, I want you to notice God says He is going to judge Judah's sin. In verse 11, your Bible says something like that God was going to make Jerusalem a heap of ruins or, or rubble. 
the language there is more like God is not going to just level Judah, but he's going to turn it into a hole in which to heap Jerusalem into. And then in verse 15, God says he's going to feed his people with bitter food and water. This is a a reversal of what he did during the Exodus, where he made the bitter water sweet and he gave them good food. He's going to reverse that. And then in verse 16, God says he's going to scatter them among the nations, which is a reversal of the promised land where he brought them all together. And then if you just peek ahead to verse 21 real quick, God says that people will be saying things like, death has come into our window and entered our houses, cutting off our children. This is a reversal of the Passover, where God spared the firstborn children from the angel of death. Now they will not be spared. In other words, God is is basically cataloging how he's going to reverse all the incredible ways that he had saved his people throughout history. But second, and more importantly, how does Scripture say that God felt about that? How did, how did He feel about having to judge His people so devastatingly? Well, look back at verse 10. God said, I will take up weeping and wailing because the land will be laid waste, is what He goes on to say. Now, you might be thinking, if, if judging his people is so painful to him, then why doesn't God just forgive them or let it go? Picture a judge in a courtroom. And, and standing before this judge is a, is a horrific criminal who has been convicted and, and, and is now awaiting sentencing. Someone like those involved in the Victoria Martin case. If you're not familiar who that is, then just picture a criminal that would make even the most devout anti-death penalty person say, okay, but just this once. Imagine that during that sentencing, the judge said something like this. The acts that you have committed are unspeakable, In all my years on this bench, I have never heard of such grotesque crimes, but the sentence you deserve, it makes me too sad. I can't imagine putting you through that, so I'm going to let you off with a warning. Would that be right? Would it be right if someone didn't receive justice for the terrible things that they had done to others? The answer is, of course, no. Now take that sense of justice that you have in your heart right now, multiply it times infinity, and that's what God should do. You can't have a perfect God who overlooks sin and is still God. However, does that mean that God enjoys it? Does that mean that he enjoys upholding his righteousness and justice? The answer is no. Our God is a loving God. He's as loving as he is just. In fact, 
Listen to what Luke said about Jesus in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. It says, And when he, that's Jesus, drew near and saw Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So he's weeping over Jerusalem, but why is he weeping? He says, because the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, what Jesus is describing here is 70 AD, <clears throat> where Rome seized Jerusalem so severely that the people had to resort to cannibalism. And then when the people were, were too few and too weak, Rome broke through the walls and slaughtered whoever was left alive and leveled the whole place. But again, what was Jesus' reaction to this judgment? He was weeping. The people being conquered and, and imprisoned was what God had determined was the just judgment for the horrific sins that they had committed against him. But that didn't mean that it, it didn't wound his heart. Remember, we read at the end of chapter 9 that God wants us to know that he is both a God of steadfast love and judgment. In other words, knowing God means lamenting the incurable wound of sin and the devastating judgment that comes from it. There's one last way that Jeremiah shows us what it looks like to know God. You see, if you just follow the, the process that the Bible describes, if the people sin, then they get judged. That, judge is, that judgment is always very severe, and when that judgment comes, the people cry out. Which means, lastly, if you look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 17, you'll see that knowing God looks like lamenting not only the incurable wound of sin and the judgment of sin, but knowing God looks like lamenting the painful cry of that judgment. Lamenting the painful cry of that judgment, chapter 9, verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider and call for the mourning women to come, Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly ashamed because we have left the land because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters to a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak. Thus declares the Lord, The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. I don't know if you're familiar with the economic term of what's called a growth industry. 
Growth industries are sectors of the economy that are experiencing a higher growth rate than, than other sectors are. It's usually based on demand for a new product or, or a renewed need for an existing product. For example, today, things like solar, digital money, um, pharmaceuticals, those are growth industries in our, in our economy. Now, what God is talking about back in verse 17 through 19, where he describes uh, calling for the mourning women to come, is still a tradition in the Middle East today. These are women whose whole job is to go to funerals and wail. You pay them to come to your funeral and cry. In fact, in, in many, many Middle Eastern countries still today, the, the number of professional whalers that you have at your funeral is a status symbol. But what God is saying is that this judgment is going to be so severe that these professional mourners were, were going to be a growth industry in Judah. In fact, there weren't even going to be enough of these professional mourners. So you see in verse 20, he tells the women to teach the daughters to lament and the neighbors to adurge. You're going to need some amateur mourners because there won't be enough professional ones. What we're talking about here is this. The Bible tells us very plainly that the wages of sin is death. If you want to know if you're a sinner, then ask if you will die. There's your answer. It says that the reason we die is because each and every one of us are sinners. And whether it be a, a simple physical injury or, or a broken relationship, all of the chaos and the calamity and the pain in this world is caused by sin. But just because our God is just, that doesn't mean that He's immune to the heartache that comes from hearing His people cry out in, in the pain of, of sin. In John chapter 11, Jesus' good friends, or good friend Lazarus, had become sick. So Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, had sent for Jesus to come because they had seen Jesus heal other sick people. But Jesus got there too late, and Lazarus died. And so when he got there, Martha went to get her, her sister Mary. And picking up in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 28... It says, when she, that's Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, that's Mary, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, those are the mourners, when they saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now listen to Jesus' reaction to seeing this, this family's heartache. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. You see, the one who knows God the best 
in fact, the one who knew that in moments he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, isn't telling Mary, calm down, woman. Good grief, don't you know who I am? I got this. That's not what he says. No, he's weeping over the effect, over the painful cries that sin had caused in this family from losing Lazarus. In other words, knowing God is lamenting that painful cry of, of those who are experiencing the consequences of sin, whether it be their own or someone else's. You see, what I want you to hear this morning is that knowing God is grieving and weeping for, the, for, for sin and the pain that it causes without agreeing with or excusing the sin. You can have both at the same time. I can grieve that a murderer gets executed without saying they shouldn't have been executed. I can grieve that a, a rapist will have a terrible time in life in prison without saying that they shouldn't spend life in prison. Knowing God is lamenting that things are not the way they should be. It's lamenting that people are enslaved to their sin and the suffering from the consequences that, that comes from it. Knowing God is lamenting the incurable wound of sin, the, the devastating judgment of sin, and the painful cries that come from that judgment. But I wonder if you picked up on a seeming contradiction at the end of Jeremiah chapter 9 that we read at the very beginning of this passage. We've been talking about lamenting sin and judgment and suffering. But did you notice that in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23, God wasn't talking about lament? What was it that He said? In 9.23, yes, He said, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or his might or his money, verse 24, but let him boast in this. Let him boast in that he knows me. So at the end of Jeremiah chapter 9, God is talking about boasting. How does that work? How does God go from grieving and weeping so deeply in, in chapter 8 and the most of chapter 9 to boasting? I mean, certainly God isn't contradicting himself, is he? Certainly we've seen that he's not boasting over judging these people. The answer is, of course not. So somehow, according to God, boasting and weeping must be able to coexist. How does that work? That, that, that's one more question that we have to answer this, this morning, is how can boasting and weeping exist at the same time? Well, the answer is pretty simple. I'll give you the short version first, and then I'll explain it. Boasting and weeping can exist at the same time in Jesus Christ. Boasting and weeping can exist at the same time in Jesus Christ. You see, our God is perfectly holy. He cannot overlook the smallest sin. And each and every one of us are both born and practiced sinners. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, 
It says, you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We were among those whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. This is the state of each and every single one of us without Jesus, the the same place as those in Jeremiah. People who God was weeping over because of how He was going to judge us. We were being grieved over by God because of what was in store for us until, brothers and sisters, until the most two important, two most important words in the entire scripture came to life. But God, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. We were enslaved to the passions of our flesh, but God. We were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God. Continuing in Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him, and He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Listen, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, brothers and sisters, we Christians know better than most that we have no reason to boast on our own behalf. No one can boast in his own works. We're not going to get to heaven and the MC is going to tell Jesus, Hey, Jesus, why don't you sit down for a minute so Grant can tell us what he had to do with salvation. No, death proves that each and every human has no reason to boast in their own worth. But we as Christians do know that we have every reason to boast in our God. We have every reason to boast in our God because when mankind was stuck in the darkness and the pain and the heartache of Jeremiah chapter 8 and 9, when man was without hope in this world, our God sent Jesus Christ to take the judgment that we deserve. He sent Jesus to live the life that we have ruined. And on that cross, our God offers you and I a completely free exchange. He'll credit you His perfect life in exchange for each and every one of your sins. And get this, to make that exchange, all you have to do is believe that you need it and believe that He did it. That's why we boast, not in anything of our own, but in Christ alone. We boast that He alone reached into the miry pit that we had created by our own sin and depravity. And we boast that by Him alone, He was wounded to cure our incurable wound. That the the wound was incurable on our own, 
but by wounding Christ, our wound was healed. We boast that by doing that, he alone defeated our sin and therefore death on our behalf. We boast that he offers that salvation free of charge to anyone and everyone who would confess their sin and repent and believe. And brothers and sisters, we boast that there is absolutely no other God ever conceived by man that would do that for their people. Why? Because they can't. But our God, our God is not like other gods. He's the only God that would come and live with his people in order to do what they couldn't on their behalf. He's the kind of God who died in order to purchase their forgiveness. That's why we boast. What does that have to do with weeping? How does that boasting relate to the weeping that we've been looking at? Well, the answer, brothers and sisters, is if that kind of salvation is available, if we know a God who, just like he said in Jeremiah chapter 9, if we know a God who is full of steadfast love and righteousness and justice, if we know that God and what he's done, then how much more do we weep that there are those who would reject him? People who know his offer of forgiveness yet claim they don't need it. How much more do we weep for those who are suffering from the consequences of their sin because they have rejected a God who offers himself to take that sin away? How much more do we weep for those who have rejected a God who offers not the, not the judgment that he gives, but the discipline of a loving father who Offers not the despair of heartache, but the peace that surpasses understanding. A God who offers not the pain of loss, but the hope of being found. In other words, friends, the way weeping and boasting coexist is this. Our weeping should fuel our boasting. We need to allow the truth, the, the terrible truth that there are those who don't know the God that we know. People who are still living in, in Jeremiah 8 and 9. We let that terrible truth penetrate our hearts and drive us to boast about the God we know. Let your sorrow over those who would reject this God that you know, let let. Let that sorrow fuel you to boast more about His holiness and His hope. Let the sorrow that there are still those who need the God who offers hope to the hopeless, let that bring you to boast, to boast of the love and the mercy and the sacrifice and the forgiveness, to boast of the steadfast love and the glory and the glory and the glory of the God that you know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is such a contrast of emotions that you offer us this morning. and Going from weeping to boasting and then boasting to weeping and then weeping and boasting at the same time, Lord, it's, it's difficult to wrap our arms around, much less our hearts. So, Lord, we pray that, that, that as you said today that 
Our solution is to know you more. That we would grow in our relationship with you so deeply that we would become more like you. And that this relationship of weeping and boasting would become um, not a, a decision that we make, but a reflex, a part of our character. And we would reflect you very clearly to this world. Father, we know that, that all of this we can do because of Jesus Christ. It is Him in whom we boast, and it is because of Him we weep. And so, Father, it is in Him we pray. Amen. Amen. Behold.